Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show, follow it. That's it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow Speaking Soundly, thank you. But there's still something you can do to help out. Click the Share Podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. Okay, so thanks for the continued support. We really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Yannick Nézès-Séguin is an internationally celebrated three-time Grammy Award-winning conductor who leads the Philadelphia Orchestra, Montreal's Orchestre Metropolitan, and the Metropolitan Opera, where he's my boss and just the third music director in the company's long history. He's a modern-day maestro who defies convention and commands the podium with precision, passion, and a smile. People think they have an edge whenever they're negative, but I don't feel that music goes with that. I mean, we've been trained a little bit because sometimes you need to hear negative things, otherwise you don't reach the maximum of your potential. But I just try to go the other way around. That's why you don't see me yell. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. First of all, it's going to be tough to sit here and talk to you about what makes you a great conductor without sounding like I'm sucking up to my boss. (laughs) So buckle up, all right? We're backstage at Carnegie Hall. We just finished a rehearsal where you led a stage packed with orchestra musicians, chorus and soloists. It was chaotic on stage before you came out. And then you walk in, you get on that podium, and you start conducting, and everybody in the room 
is immediately focused on you. What does it feel like to guide and hold the attention and the energy of hundreds of people literally in the palm of your hand? I mean, you're asking me something really back to the essential or the essence of what a conductor does. You know, it's, it's so mysterious. I always remind myself how weird it is. You know, you know, you're just there, you stand, you wave, and people either do it or they don't. And it's, it's a big responsibility. It's, um, it's something that I try to take with humility. And I get nightmares before it happens, before rehearsals is where I get nightmares. Because my nightmares are always about, I'm going to go up there and everybody's just going to look at me with no smile, nothing. It actually never happened in my life. I was going to say, it's probably <laughs> never happened. No, it's never happened. But I'm always prepared for the worst. Yeah, well, do the nightmares come from the anxiety that they just won't be on board with you? Like you, like you won't have them in the palm of your hand? No, it's a good question. It's coming from maybe my main motto as a conductor, as a musician, is to serve the music, serve the score. As a conductor, my understanding of leading is to serve. So therefore, I want to serve the musicians. What makes me feel I did a good job is when I feel like the musicians had a good time, <laughs> basically expressed the way they wanted to. And because I said that so, so high in my list, I become nervous or anxious that uh, I won't be able to convince them. And therefore, they're going to be bored, uh, dissatisfied, and therefore the music won't lift off the page. So it's not so much that I want to avoid conflict. or It's more about, oh, it's not going to... It's like a recipe and it's just the cake will stay flat, you know? Right. And so that's the anxiety. Yeah. Your job as a conductor hinges on your ability to maintain control. A lot of different factors. You Obviously, you have to control the music. You have to control the musicians making it. You have to control the time that you have in doing it, the pacing, the logistics. It's a lot. When things start to spiral out of control, many conductors will start to bark and scream, but you never do. I've never seen you lose it. I mean, on occasion, the worst is maybe you'll stop smiling for a minute. <laughs> How did you cultivate this ability to maintain control without becoming a tyrant? No, it's true. Even when I stop smiling, then I have like a few days after of like, oh my God, <laughs> I stopped, you know, I was, maybe I was mean. And then everyone's like, no, no, you were not mean. That's not mean. And I, um, there's a lot. You have just the best questions because of course, you being you, I shouldn't be, shouldn't be surprised that these questions are exactly the right ones. So there's a lot in that. I think I got good examples. Um, my mentor was Carlo Maria Giulini. Giulini was renowned in an era where the common denominator of every conductor was to be a tyrant. Hmm. He was a gentleman. You know, I witnessed that. When I'm 21 and I'm discussing with him and I'm trying to get answers to very technical questions. And then his only thing is to stay calm and actually treat me with respect and 
more than respect. He treated me almost like his equal. And he was 80. I was 20. I said, why are you treating me like this? But I understood that it's fundamentally this respect that gets the thing going. So, yes, control. But the issue that happens with conducting is that we forget that we're there first and foremost to illustrate, you know, I wanted to say inspire, but maybe that's too general, but illustrate the music, live the music. And in that sense, Lenny did it a lot. That's my other example. You just embody the music with every part of your body and live the music so that everyone is living it too. So when things, to your question, when things go out of control, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, riding a horse. Do you ride horses? Mm. I ride the subway. <laughs> no, I've never ridden a horse in my life. Well, it just teaches you how it's bigger than you and you have sometimes to just give it a bit more space is actually what's going to get the control back. Also, you know, negativity gets... I feel like people think they have an edge whenever they're negative, but I don't feel that music goes with that. I mean, we've been trained a little bit because sometimes you need to hear negative things, otherwise you don't reach the the maximum of your potential, but I just try to go the other way around. That's why you don't see me yell. And earlier in my career, I got sometimes more maybe hurt by, by being gentle, by being nice. Sometimes some people abused. And I sometimes felt early in my conducting career, especially guest conducting, oh, I should change. Now I'm going to become mean. And it lasted, I don't know, one month. And, you know, it's not me. So then I have to accept it. And, you know, if sometimes if some colleagues are not nice because I'm too gentle, well, so be it. I prefer that than the opposite. When you conduct, it's amazing to see how much you're doing at once because you're conducting everybody, but you're also conducting individual players. Like as the score goes by, every entrance has you like a hummingbird buzzing around to different players in the orchestra, giving cues, shaping notes, reacting, anticipating. Plus, when it's opera and there's a stage, it's like double that amount of work because there's more people. When you're in the middle of this juggling act, are you even aware of how often you're shifting your focus from one person to the next? Because it's amazing to watch. <laughs> I love the hummingbird example because so far the best I could come up with it was a squirrel. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I love hummingbird. Um, it's less frantic than a squirrel. Yeah, I think it's because it came from a review I got when I did my Berlin debut, not the Berlin Philharmonic, but before that another orchestra in Berlin. And there was, uh, and the title was this, like a squirrel. He looks in every direction, ready to jump and, you know, gives his attention and we hope he won't change something like this. So even at Curtis, we, uh, my students in conducting, we call them Team Squirrel. So, uh, <laughs> so I believe in this um, giving attention to a million things at once because there's a million things that happen in music. Yes, it's our role often as a conductor to balance things and therefore bringing the orchestra, the colleagues, their attention to one line. But... There's so much in between. So, yes, I, I, I am aware huh. of this because it's a philosophy. It's really, um, I, I believe that's what a conductor should be doing. And the more the merrier, 
in a strange way. Uh, that's why I like opera. And the bigger the opera is, I, I love it. I Not because I like to direct traffic, but I think because I love to be able to have my attention in many places. So I, I know I can bring something. I want to hone in on one of those micro moments that happen because I've been the recipient of many of those over the years of playing with you, and it's pretty amazing. I could be sitting around for 10 minutes waiting to play, and I know exactly how I want to play it and how loud and all that, but a split second before I do, you could like give me a look or move your hand in a certain way that changes the way I do it. And it's, it's like this weird Jedi mind trick that you have <laughs> in that moment. First of all, does that ability to get in the, somebody's head like that, does that come in handy in any other part of your life outside of conducting? <laughs> yeah, I should ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, I love to hear your perspective of this because to me, it's more like, I feel like I'm more like giving you a hand so that we do it together. So I never think like I'm going to change their way. It's more, oh, how about we do it together? So, you know, I, I still play the piano. I do chamber music. I love it. Mm -hmm. But I always knew I wanted to be a conductor. So piano was kind of not interesting for me when I grew up and I just couldn't wait to conduct. But I'm still want to make chamber music all the time when I conduct. So when I look at you or when I look at your colleagues to do a solo or an entrance, I just feel it's almost like I'm playing. I'm. It's the interaction. Yes, exactly. So every one of the million hummingbird moments you have throughout a symphony is a little relationship. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm exhausted that's, just thinking about well, it. That's why when... By the end, I would say, of my real guest-conducting-focused career, when I was making debuts after debuts after debuts, it's a, every debut is a hundred new people, new hearts, new relationships. With my way of thinking, my job, that started to be too much. I guess if you go to, from one place to the other a bit more detached, or you have a little recipe or something, but mm -hmm. I'm not built this way. So there were a couple cancellations that were simply, I remember calling my agent and saying, Look, I just cannot face the thought of having 100 new friends. You know, right? that's it. You've said that music is your religion, and it's obviously your life's work. And that work started when you were really young. In fact, there's a home video of you conducting. It was just on 60 Minutes for everybody to see. It's you conducting in your class in middle school. How old were you? Yeah, I was uh, 11 you're conducting to this recording and it's amazing how serious you are about it. First of all, I want to know what the other kids thought as they came in dressed up as firemen or baseball players. Like, what did they think <laughs> when you walk in dressed like a conductor? I think the common thing was to find it weird, but um, I think I believed in it so much that they just had to deal with it. I, I just didn't care if not. And uh, I, when I look at this video, <laughs> what I find very strange is that I don't think that I changed a lot. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. But your gestures are a lot more subtle. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm reassured no. that I can do a little less than that video. <laughs> 
what sparked that passion for conducting at such a young age? It's not a normal thing to aspire to as a 10-year-old, right? Uh, there's one event, and I like to mention it because I think we should not underestimate what it is to expose our art form to kids or having the media. The, the, I'm talking about television. Because what happened when I was 10 is that Charles Dutois and the Montreal Symphony were going on tour to Europe. And the entire city of Montreal was behind that. So we could see them on TV and the news, front page of the newspapers. And that's how I got interested. I said, what's happening there? And because I was aware of music before, I was playing piano, but I found it a little, uh, I don't know, I felt lonely when I was doing this. Then the idea of a group thing, but still having my own role in it. And then I started singing in a choir, and then I saw my choral conductor, and she was fabulous. And I told her I would like to conduct. We were doing a gig singing O Canada for a convention or something, and we were just waiting for the event. And she uh, said, oh, while we were waiting, because we're bored, is, does anyone want to come and conduct? You know? And I said, yes, me. And I was 10, and it felt easy. So that day I said, okay, I'm going to become a conductor. That, that simple. But I think it's really because two things. My parents introduced us, me and my sisters, to so many things. We had to just go and see some dance, some theater, some hockey, some uh, uh, improvisation, some music. And then eventually, you know, you get something that you find a little more to your liking, but also the media. I, I really believe in it. Was your household a particularly musical one? Did your parents play instruments? They're not musicians, but there was a piano and my parents would play once in a while a little song at night. So yeah. my two sisters uh, decided to, you know, just had piano lessons. And they're both older. I'm the baby in the family. And it was convenient because my piano teacher at the time was just the neighbor. <laughs> and I wanted to be different. So I said, I want to have a violin lessons. And the day before my violin lesson, I guess I, I became a bit lazy. I didn't want to go uh, all the way across town. So I told my parents, can can I also do piano? <laughs> so, Out of convenience. Yeah. But I, everyone is a teacher in my family. That's maybe the, the connection. That's the mindset. And I see that connection with conducting. Even though I don't want to be the teacher, as I said, in a way, there's there's that. You have to imagine the road to make everyone be the best versions of themselves, you know, right. and that's that's how it came. Yeah. I mean, were you equally passionate about piano as conducting? When did you decide that, no, conducting was always the thing? Yeah, piano became serious when I knew it could be a road to conduct. Hmm. And only now, only since the pandemic, actually, I love piano for what it is. Before that, it was a road for conducting. My mother says I was gifted at the piano. I don't believe I was especially gifted. I think I was... Moms tend to do that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but actually, you have recorded some solo piano recordings. And just a month or two ago at Carnegie Hall, you conducted the Olympics of Rachmaninoff piano concertos with Yuja Wang when she did all four concertos. So I got to ask, when you're on the stage conducting a concert like that, do you have an itch to play? 
Or are you like, thank God I skirted that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very good question because, yes, it's inspiring. In a way, it is. But it's very clear that I'm nowhere, like, as a pianist, I'm not in that category, you know? It's something else. And I admire it, but I also see how, how lonely it is, basically, to do something like that at that level. And uh, I feel lucky that I always have a lot of friends making music with me, you right. know, and not having this... But, oh, man, I, I, I'm i in love with the sound of the piano now more. Before, for me, uh, the piano was neutral. And I spent my time trying to imitate instruments of the orchestra at the piano. And now I like the sound of the piano for itself. And I even last night, we came back from this very big day of rehearsal. And I had another meeting. And you know how it is. Meetings, meetings. Then I arrive home at 6.30. And I have an hour before going to dinner. And my first instinct is, oh, I should take a nap. And then I saw my piano and just played a little bit. And it did the same thing as a nap. It just cleansed me and calmed me down. I mean, 10 years ago, I've never have done that. Now it has a new importance in my life. And it's actually calming me down. Of course, now you're known for leading the best ensembles in the world. And you're in a rare class of conductors. But what was the road like to get there? Like, what was harder, making music or making a career making music? <sighs> um, of course, every conductor has a different path. It's so relative also. You study conducting? Do you really? I never really studied conducting. I'm a piano major. That's what my diploma is. And then I had here and there some lessons. And I think there's a lot of us. Hold on. So you're an unaccredited conductor? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Exactly. I'm a, I'm a fake. <laughs> <laughs> so to agree and trust the road, that was maybe what I found hard because I thought, how am I going to get to the next level? How am I going to get exposure with orchestras and it's it's a valid question you know it's a it's a different but similar than you go and you're out of school and you do take auditions and where is that going to lead you know if you're an instrumentalist so it was very important to take every opportunity seriously and focus on making music not doing something in order to go up in the career ladder there's no part too small, no venue that's too small. I conducted so many choral pieces with amateur singers, not singing in tune in a, a church that had just like, I don't know, 50 people in the concert. Yet you take it seriously and it's worth taking it seriously because there's always someone who's going to be affected by it. And I, I was lucky that everything kind of happened because of word of mouth that was uh, conducting this amateur choir. We did concerts where I needed some professional chorus people to join in to help them. Some of those pro singers sang in the Montreal Opera Chorus. They told the boss of the Montreal Opera who all of a sudden wanted to see me and hire me. And this is how the career happened. And so I wouldn't go back to this time, though, because it was very exciting to make debuts, everything, 
And I referenced it earlier in our conversation that, you know, meeting many people all at once, I, I feel we make better music when we know each other. I'm so happy I'm in the phase of my career where I don't travel so much. And of course, I'm happy. Of course, I'm grateful because, you know, I just work with the best people. But also that I feel like we can just deepen. You know, just in a couple hours, we're going to play Brahms' Requiem on the stage here at Carnegie Hall. This is a piece that you conducted first at the age of 21. You sang since the age of 12. So this is a piece that's been in your head and your heart for decades. So during the performance tonight, as you're conducting, what do you hope gets communicated through your experience of this piece to the hundreds of people on the stage and the thousands of people in the sold-out auditorium tonight? Spiritual experiences are, I think, the most powerful ones that music can bring. I was born and raised Catholic, and I still am, you know, in many ways. I mean, I believe in God. You know, I have my, you know, religion for me is something we could talk about a lot. And I know you have also a spiritual life, and, you know, some of us do on stage and some of us don't. But when music is spiritual, this is where people connect, I feel, at the deepest level. So it doesn't become about words we say. It doesn't become about exactly in who you believe. It becomes about believing in a better world. Uh, it sounds very idealistic, but I really believe in it. And I feel like a piece like this Brahms Requiem, just even if someone has a heart of stone, cannot be untouched by this this piece. And that's what I hope for. I hope that every time people come to hear us, I hope they can forget whatever they have in their lives going on at that moment for an hour and a half, but also that they can leave the concert hall with a renewed faith in what the world can bring or can be. And that, if there's one piece you know, that can do this is really this Brahms Requiem. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for your thank time. Thank you, David. The questions you're asking me are just so, they get to a very different level. Oh, good. Thank you. Do me a favor. Remember this feeling when I'm playing sharp. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. 